Today's episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a process that is fast, easy, and completely online. Learn more at quickenloans.com slash fool. It's the September All Mailbag episode! You've been looking forward to it all year long. This is the one, this is the big one. This is the big one we've been waiting for all year. That's not true at all. Uh, Today we're going to answer your questions about whether to max out your 401k or take arms with buying individual stocks. We're going to talk about options for when you're running out of money in retirement and lots of insurance, like long-term care and whole life and all that good stuff. So get excited, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) If you're lucky, we'll maybe work in some taxes. Get some caffeine in your system. (laughs) (laughs) We have fun. All right. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. So for today's mailbag episode, we're going to get some help from a couple planners from Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool. And those planners are Sean Gates and Joe Perna. Thanks, guys, for joining us. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Okay. (laughs) Get into it. I don't know. I don't know what I expected you to say. Maybe just like, it's an honor to be here. Or, I love you guys. I listen to the show all the time. I can't believe this is happening. This will be the highlight of my year. This will be the highlight of some some short amount of time in your life. This will be a good time. All right. All right. we'll We'll just get into it. Fine. All right. John B. writes, a friend recently mentioned that it doesn't make sense for people our age, late 20s. Yeah, yes, John, that is that is our age, should anyone ask. I am in my late 20s. Uh, to be investing in a personal brokerage account, if not maxing out a 401k. He continues, I contribute 11% to my 401k with an 8% employer match. I also contribute bi-weekly payments to some index funds and a side brokerage account. Does it make sense to bump up my 401k contribution and eliminate my brokerage contributions. Joe, this one's going to you. Yeah, so I would say John B., great job saving diligently into the 401k. Uh, it's good to get started early, so late 20s, I would say that's you know starting that's, fair, yeah, fairly early. That's, that's good. good. And yeah. saving 19% when we take into account the employer match, that's pretty hefty. That's a good chunk to be putting towards the retirement plan. Um, you know, When thinking about saving into a 401k in the taxable account, I like the idea of having a taxable account due to the flexibility that you have. That flexibility is huge when you're thinking about down payments for a house, when you're thinking about uh, wedding costs if you're not married yet, or wedding rings, or automobile purchases, all of those things. Cost funds, or you know, you need to be using money when it's tied up in retirement accounts, you can't access those funds as easily. So those taxable accounts, I think, are, are great. So to me, the flexibility is fantastic. And I would say 19% is a good amount to be putting towards retirement. Additional flexibility is fantastic. I think there's not a problem there, and I would disagree with your friend. Maybe defriend him on Facebook. <laughs> Maybe not that far, but yeah, I think you're doing a great job here, John B. So next time, someone a friend recently mentions that you shouldn't really bother him, then he can say no. Yeah, I enjoy the flexibility that my taxable accounts give me because I plan on getting married and um, doing all these wonderful things with my life. That's right. Stay out of my business. <laughs> what do you know about me? You don't know me, oh, friend. The, the next time he talks to people, he won't have anyone to go to because he will have alienated all of his friends. <laughs> Who are just trying to help. Oh, man. Next question comes to us from Fernando. Should I take a $10,000 401k loan, not withdrawal, and use it to pay part of my student debt? The way I see it is my student debt has an interest rate of 6.84%, and the average market return is about 6 to 8%, but it is not guaranteed. So, Sean, what do you say? 
I say go for it. Uh, I think there's a lot of controversy out there about 401k loans from your typical financial advisory groups. And they usually bring up really worst case scenario type of things. Should you lose the job, you have to pay it back within a certain period of time, a pretty short period of time. The interest is usually amortized over five years. Um, but, but those things usually don't occur. And so there, there's a huge benefit, as you stated, to getting a guaranteed rate, a kind of quote unquote, of 6.84% against your, against your loan. And you're going to pay yourself back in interest. The one caveat that I would just make you aware of is that the interest that you pay yourself is sort of double taxed because you're, you're making the payments with after-tax dollars. Um, and then you're going to get taxed on it again when it comes out in retirement. Um, but that's a pretty small amount. You, you know, you would hope to keep the interest fairly small as you pay it back quickly. Right. So. One of the appealing things about a 401k loan is the rate can be rather low. Often it is one point above prime. Nowadays the prime rate is 3.5%, so you're looking at about 4.5 for most of those loans. So that is certainly one reason why you might consider doing this. But it is important to know that if you plan on leaving this job in a year because you got your MBA, then you're going to be expected to pay back that loan. Or it'll be considered a distribution, you know, taxes and penalties. I would also recommend checking out a website called earnest.com. It's a new kind of robo-y advisor type thing. And it's set up for folks who are in a pretty good job. They do a lot more due diligence on the recipient of the loan. But there are some great interest rates out there for folks who have a solid job. Um, and you might be able to just consolidate your student loan debt as opposed to taking out a 401k. I'm not saying, again, the 401k seems like a fine idea in your case, um, but just another avenue to explore if you'd like. Cool. All right. Next question comes from Bill. He writes, My father-in-law, who's now 81, provided for his family for years and didn't save enough for retirement. He has less than 10000 in savings. He does get Social Security. Uh, his wife was never employed, so she doesn't collect Social Security. Uh, one of his daughters convinced him to do a reverse mortgage with some more home equity available if when needed. Generally speaking, what are the options for him to make his cash last as long as possible? And are there any solid ways we, he can help himself or we can help him? He's a prideful man and doesn't like the idea of us helping, so we're a bit stuck. So far, we're doing small things to alleviate expenses, like paying for his cell phone plan. All right, Joe. This is a t- this is That's like a tough situation. This is like the worst nightmare, right? You yeah. you you're no you're not going back to work. You're not going back to work. You are running out of money. Right. right. And so the cash position, you you really don't want to be putting those funds at risk in the market. You, you really want to be keeping that in cash or maybe CDs, maybe short-term bonds. But because you're going to be requiring those funds to be paying for your living expenses, to put them at risk and potentially see some volatility in the market is just not a great idea. Uh, so I, I would not be saying to, to put that money to work. I would really just say keep it in cash for the time being. One thing I do want to point out is uh, you mentioned that your mother-in-law didn't work, and so she's not eligible to collect Social Security. And while that is the case, she does have the ability to pick up spousal, uh, a spousal Social Security benefit on her husband. So she's eligible to receive up to uh, half of his benefit at full retirement age. So if he's making $30,000 in Social Security, uh, Social Security income, she could be eligible to get $15,000. So if that's not something that you guys have looked into, you certainly want to do that with the family. Uh, that's an additional source of income that'll be really attractive to the family. Uh, yep. 
And, and the reverse mortgage probably makes sense for them, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. And it, you you might know a little bit more about the reverse mortgage, so you might want to just feed people in on that. Right. So it's a it's a way of basically using your home equity if you're 62 or older. You take out the loan. It can it can be a monthly check. It can be a lump sum. It can be a line of credit. And you don't have to pay it back as long as you live in the house. And um, so if he plans to live there forever, it's a good idea. He won't have to pay it back. Or his wife. Or his wife. Okay. Um, and if the loan ever grows to be worth bigger than the value of the house, you can't come after the estate. The uh, bank can only get the value of the house once the loan, once it's time to pay off the loan. So it is. I look at it as a big fat emergency fund for retirees. But in this situation, it sounds like he is in an emergency, and a reverse mortgage is probably a smart thing to do. Yeah, I would say it's an underutilized thing uh, that people don't realize uh, that, that they can tap that equity, uh, and it's definitely a backdrop or a backstop on on someone's retirement income if they if they haven't saved diligently enough. It is a great place, a great source of income. Are there any shysters out there in the reverse mortgage industry that you need to look out for? Well, you definitely have to be careful with them. They they have high upfront costs, so those those have come down significantly. The best sources of information about reverse mortgages is, is HUD, the Housing for Urban Development, and AARP has good resources too. But you definitely want to make sure you're getting a good deal from it. The other the only other thing I would say is many cities, states, and counties have resources for low-income elderly. So, you would definitely want to look and to see what's available. It can be breaks on property taxes and, and maybe other services that can be provided. And for all you listeners out there, that's a warning to make sure that when you're doing your planning, pay attention to your family, because they're money-grubbing people. Oh! <laughs> no! It's a lesson that, like, when you're in an airplane and it starts going down, you need to put your air mask over yourself first and then help those around you. Because it sounds like his father-in-law was very generous. And um, probably didn't worry about himself as much as he maybe should have. Right. Next question comes from Rex, who is a CFP, by the way. So he must be smart. He must be smart. So the three CFPs here in the room. (laughs) Do we get to wrestle? CFP practitioners. (laughs) I feel like he probably already has an idea of what the answer is, and he's just waiting to see if you guys are going to get it right. He's testing us. He's testing you. All right. Rex writes, when applying rules of thumb to your retirement accounts, what, if any, adjust- adjustments should you make for Roth holdings? If Allison, for example, has 500000 in a traditional IRA and Robert has 500000 in a Roth, Robert has more money because he doesn't have to pay taxes on his, on his withdrawals. With taxes running at 25%, Robert has 125000 more avail- to- available to him. I think that is a difference that should warrant an adjustment. Do you agree, Sean? Do you agree, Sean? Rex would like to know. I know. You've set me up, Rex, because there's not an awesome answer to this question. <laughs> uh, maybe you just don't have I, an awesome yeah, answer. That's, not, that's right, right. I'm not awesome, and so I'm leaving this show. Uh, no, so I would say that, I mean, there are rules of thumb. There aren't a lot of rules of thumb that are talked about very widely. One of the primary rules of thumb, and this is sort of just industry specific, is just you try to diversify your tax buckets more broadly. So the the rule is a third, a third, a third. So try to have a third of your assets in pre-tax or tax-qualified buckets, uh, a third in completely after-tax or taxable, as Joe talked about earlier, and then a third in Roth, which is you know completely tax-free. And and so as to your point on the five hundred thousand versus five hundred thousand, you would make an adjustment, but I would caution folks because. Having 500000 is not assumed in both cases, because it's going to take longer to get $500,000 in Roth accounts, because you pay the tax up front. So, you don't have as much available 
to fund the accounts. Whereas if you do pre-tax, you get that tax savings and it sort of compounds over time. I will say that um, I'm a big fan of retirement calculators. And there are a lot of them out there that try to make it very easy and make it too easy. And whenever I see a, a calculator that does not differentiate between whether an account is traditional or Roth, I immediately think it's invalid. Because Rex is right, it should be accounted for somewhere. And that's one way to do it in a good retirement calculator. And it just gets really complicated because you can't even account for the flexibility, as Joe was talking about earlier as well, that a Roth account affords you. So as you approach retirement, if you're able to retire early, you might be able to accelerate income from that Roth, and that just further adds to the benefit that it that it provides. And so, you know, I, I would say there definitely are adjustments that you need to make, um, and and we just need to come up with better rules of thumb together as as CFPs. <laughs> Before we get to some more questions, I want to say thanks to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for sponsoring today's podcast. You're listening to a podcast, so I can tell that you're a tech-savvy, forward-thinking, and extremely attractive individual. So, the next time you want to refinance or buy a house, you can embrace the future yet again with Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. Because maybe you're also lazy. So, check out Rocket Mortgage at quickenloans.com fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, and MLSConsumerAccess.org, number 3030. Next question comes from Kevin and Karen. We listened to today's podcast where you answered a listener email regarding insurance. One item you didn't mention is long-term care insurance. What are the pros and cons, things to consider, and are different types with different coverages? First off, what is long-term care insurance? So, long-term care insurance provides coverage uh, in the case of a long-term care event, which means that you lose uh, two of the six daily living activities. So, well, this uh, is getting very complicated. It's very technical. Two of actually. the six daily. What are my six daily living activities? Yeah, and I'm well, going to need some help to here too. You have your own set. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I think I probably do. Indian food is one of them. <laughs> so it is. I, do love I think uh, uh, eating. You know, being able to eat yourself, being able to wash yourself. Um, I fr- I'm Toileting. Yeah. I mean, basically, the activities of daily living, things you need to do to function as a human being. And if you can't do them, and then other people have to do them. And, and that's an important part of the policy if you get long term care insurance. What exactly qualifies as a long term care need and when the policy will kick in? But basically, you you've been injured or you're just getting older or you're sick. Right. And this insurance kicks in to cover the cost to keep on living. Yeah, dement, dement, if you think dementia, that usually sort of takes care of a lot of inability to do those activities. It's more the neurological diseases a lot of the times, um, but that's on the rise. So, but it's not like health insurance. It doesn't cover like doctor stuff. Right. It covers a, wo- a woman who comes in and feeds me every day or something right. like that. Does right. some shopping or things like that. Ooh, yeah. shopping! That is one of my okay. daily things. Shopping. <laughs> yeah, so that's a that's a great question. That's on a lot of people's minds. A lot of the retirees that we speak to certainly have this question. And the argument tends to be: Do I self-insure or do I buy long-term care insurance? Um, you know, one question is: Does everyone need long-term care long-term care insurance? I would say no. Uh, I would say first you need to see if it's affordable for you and your situation. So, have you done the sufficient retirement planning? Do you know that you have enough assets to cover the expenses that you'll have in retirement? If that's the case, and you could potentially afford the long-term care insurance, then you can go down that that path and see the different types out there. Take a look to see what might be the most affordable option for you. 
Um, the issue around long-term care insurance tends to be the inflation associated with those expenses. So they're rising over the past 20 years. They've risen at about six uh, percent for the past 20 years. That's a, that's a lot of inflation on those expenses, particularly when you look at other inflation like uh, energy prices, house prices, whatnot. That's healthcare and costs. Long-term care expenses long-term care, yeah. okay, specifically. And so, uh, having some insurance to cover that inflation that is going to happen, and, and with that trend, if it continues, you need to have something in place that's going to try to at least keep up with that inflation. So, having if you can afford it, buying long-term care that does have inflation protection is, is very important. Um, so, there, there are several different types of insurance. Uh, long, sorry, long-term care insurance. Specifically, you have the traditional type, which is going to be similar to homeowner's insurance, where you pay for it if you never have to use it. It just goes away, and if you pass away without using it, it, it doesn't get used at all. Another type is the form associated with life insurance. So it's called an accelerated death benefit rider. So uh, if you do not use the benefit for long term care expenses, it's going to be left over as a death benefit, like a traditional life insurance policy. Um, the last one is an upfront lump sum option that you can pay. Uh, something like $100,000 for a certain defined benefit amount over uh, you know, a three-year or six-year time frame. So, you can structure all these policies. They can get complicated. Working with someone who knows that space very well is important, and knowing how the payouts on those policies work is very important. So, it does get complicated. I think it is an important uh, policy to consider, but after you've wrapped up your retirement, planning is where I would look to see it fit into your plan. Weren't we going to offer this benefit at The Motley Fool, but then no one took it? Yeah. It's a tough insurance because, first of all, it is not cheap. So, if you are in your 50s and looking at a policy, it's, it's going to run you about $3,000 a year. And they'll say you know, the price is fixed, but then change it later. And this is That's actually not what fixed me. I know because they can then the insurance company can apply can appeal to the state and say, listen, we underpriced this policy. We need to raise it on everyone. And it's happening actually to my mom right now. Oh. Yep. Um, so so what happens? Then people are like, I can't afford that and they stop paying. And so that now they don't have the insurance. The truth is the vast majority of long term care, which is basically some way to help older folks who need it is provided by friends and family. Only about 10% of it is provided fully by professionals. So the first question is really like who can take care of me? And some families want to make it their priority that we take care of our older relatives. Um, but if not, then what you rely on are assets and it's about $80,000 a year to be in a nursing home these days. Um, and then the backstop after that is Medicaid, which actually provides most long-term care for Americans. Whether you're comfortable or not is another question because then the government is deciding the type of care you receive. Um, so that's basically what happens with all this. But insurance, if you have the resources, as Joe said, is a good idea, but it's not cheap. And yeah. just to clarify, Bro said Medicaid, right. not Medicare. That's a very important, right? Yeah, med- basic medical Medicare that most people have once they're 65 and older does very little for long-term care, virtually none. Another interesting thing about the benefit on long-term care policies is you have two different types of payouts or benefits. You have a reimbursement policy and an indemnity clause within the policy. Um, you mentioned that uh, friends and family tend to do a lot of the caretaking of, of relatives that you know have that type of event. An indemnity clause on the long-term care insurance actually would pay out just the the amount. So if you were guaranteed six thousand dollars a month from the benefit or from the policy. Uh, that amount would come out to you. You could use it to pay for your friends and family for that care that they're providing. You don't need to have receipts from the expenses that you incur. So those indemnity clauses are something that, if you are looking for long-term care, it's a type of policy that you'd want it to be on your policy. 
Sometimes you have to pay a premium for it, though. I always make a plug for financial planning in general, and this area really crystallizes why that's so important. Because as Bro said, his mom's policy is changing, and so you know, planning is kind of a reoccurring thing. And when she goes to make the decision on whether or not she should make alterations to that policy, having Bro there to help her make that decision is going to result in the best outcome for her instead of just defaulting to whatever option the insurance gives you. And as I mentioned, with the inflation on these policies, I know that we keep going into this in particular. (laughs) Let's keep talking about inflation on insurance policies. This is good. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because inflation on these policies is what actually a lot of times causes the premium increase is because they've been uh, inflating these things, compounding these at sometimes 5% a year. So, I've I've come across some of our our members' policies that they've had in place for about 15 years or so. They've had 5% compound uh, inflation on the benefits, and now they're insured for fifteen, twenty thousand dollars worth of monthly benefit for their long-term long-term care. They can opt out of continued inflation on the policy, and their premium will not increase. So sometimes that is an option. So you know, if you do get a letter saying that your premium is increasing, there are options. If there are options around it, look at those options and understand what what they're trying to. Uh, uh, charge you more for. Yeah, this is super complicated. Sounds yes. like we need a whole episode right. on long-term <laughs> oh. care. On a, and one need on or want. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no As one else wants to say out. anything more about inflation on insurance premiums. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, we're done. Right. Yes. Okay. Not really. John writes, as I type this, I am listening to how people screw up their retirement. My biggest concern is healthcare. Are there any good tools for preparing for this eventuality? We currently put a good percentage into our 401ks and we max out our HSA. Should one count on Medicare to offset the majority of their healthcare costs late in life? Is there a good health insurance product out there for the retired elderly? Let's keep talking about insurance premiums. Let's just go. Let's go. Let's do it. So you have to be careful about inflation on Medicare. No, it's not right at all. Uh, no, this is a fa- this is actually a fantastic question, and I think a lot of financial uh, bigwigs and planners out there don't know that much about the Medicare space and health insurance for retirees, or know very little. Um, that includes me, so I'm going to stop talking now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so, so the the key thing here is that you have an HSA. That is the best account that exists. That in is, the, in stands the, for a health savings account, health by the way. Health savings account, and the reason that it's the best account that exists is because it's tax free, sort of on both ends. Um, you get a tax deduction as you contribute to the HSA, and then when you go to withdraw from the HSA, it's tax free if you use it for medical expenses. And medical expenses can include your Medicare premiums. However, uh, once you reach Medicare age, you can no longer contribute to an HSA. And so there's sort of a a finality to that account, different than some other accounts. Uh, and, And that is your best resource. Otherwise, you would want to look to Medigap policies. And then again, we won't go into the enormous amount of detail that exists on Medigap. I will just say, for the hilarity of it, is that there are Medigap policies that include the letters A through G, I think, and they each list out various different benefits. So it's a huge ball of wax in terms of the detail that gets in there. And it depends on where you live, and not all policies are available in your area. So definitely, it makes sense to go to like a site like Medicare.gov to see what's actually available to you. But it is important because when you work, if you have a good job, you're used to your employer paying for the premiums for your insurance, and then when you retire, 
you're on your own, and then you have to do it yourself, and you have to go and look at those policies and choose them and see what fits your budget, and you have to match them up with your particular ailments. It's actually quite complicated, and it's something to be thinking about many years before you retire. And to answer your question more poignantly about whether Medicare is enough, it's not. Uh, We often model about $4,000, roughly, per year for everybody of additional expenses, even assuming that you have Medicare. And part of the reason for that is Medicare doesn't cover uh, dental at all. And dental for older folks can get quite expensive because your teeth start falling out because you're old. Sorry. (laughs) Spoiler, John. (laughs) One final thing I would mention is that the HSA account combined with Obamacare is a super powerful combo because HSAs are only allowed on high deductible plans typically, and there are a lot of high deductible plans available through Obamacare. And so if you are an early retiree, there's a massive opportunity to combine those two things and really have a nice healthcare plan in place. Awesome. Okay, good. That's good. I think that nailed it. Okay. That was good. All right. Next question comes from Patrick. I am currently 46 years old with a net worth of approximately $4 million. In addition, I have two term life insurance policies. Over the years, both my insurance rep and my financial advisor have tried to convince me to consider purchasing or converting to whole or universal life policies. I have yet to hear a convincing argument to justify buying very expensive permanent life insurance policies over taking the annual premiums and investing them myself. So, uh, can you walk me through? Through the difference between whole and universe, like what's going what's going on here in Patrick's life right now? Sure. So the most basic breakdown is going to be term versus permanent. Term is as long as you pay the premiums, there's a specified term that's going to cover. The most common is going to be something like a 20-year term policy. So you pay the premium every year for 20 years. Once that's done, uh, the insurance goes away unless you try to renew that. Permanent insurance, as long as you pay the premiums, the policy is going to stay in force until you pass away. Um, uh, term insurance policies are going to be much less expensive than something like a whole life policy, which is a, per- a type of permanent insurance. Um, that's going to be the most expensive type of policy. So, one thing is I'm going to say it's not a surprise that he's trying to push them to do permanent insurance because the way they get paid, here's a tip, uh, they get paid on the first year premium uh, of those policies. So, when you convert that policy, if it's $10,000 uh, for that per- new permanent insurance policy, they're going to get paid close to $10,000. Uh, in commissions. So, one thing to be aware of is they do have some incentive, I would say misaligned incentives in this case, uh, for for trying to sell you uh, on that permanent insurance policy and trying to convert that term. That being said, there are some times that I think permanent insurance makes sense for someone's financial plan. Um, One thing in particular has to do with estate planning. So, with Patrick's example, if he lives in New Jersey, which has a pretty terrible estate uh, tax, uh, it's a it's a bad state to die in, unfortunately. Uh, but <laughs> with four million dollars in an estate, uh, you'd be subject to about three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in estate taxes that your family would have to pay New Jersey at your current net worth. That's that's a lot of money that goes to just pay taxes. So if you have a life insurance policy set aside for your family to just cover those those costs oh, in a tax free okay. manner, uh, it might be a better way to transfer those funds rather than paying. You know, uh, Governor Chris Christie right. at this time. <laughs> right. <laughs> and New Jersey's not just a bad state to die in, by the way. Also, a terrible state to live in. <laughs> That's not true. Zing. <laughs> Zing. Zing. Come on, listen to our show where I ream South Dakota every five That's seconds, true. please. But generally, I would say Patrick is 
has his instincts are correct that yeah. it's better to, to get with term and save the money or invest the money rather than buy whole life. Part of the, the issue with home life is you're getting insurance and an investment component where you're building up the cash value, but the, it doesn't often build up very well. It's not as an investment, it's often not very good. Can I ever buy insurance, life insurance without someone getting a kickback? Or is that just how it's set up? Like you just if you're going to buy insurance, someone's trying to sell you something where they get the most kickback out of it. For the most part, that's true. I mean, if you go online to um, a website and get the policy through the website, you'll find that behind the website, it's actually an insurance agency and someone's going to commission. Just that term commissions are much lower than right. whole life and policies are universal or variable life. Yeah, significantly lower. So I think that's the key. Uh, you know, you've, if you see maybe like a $200,000 term policy, the agent might get 150 to $250. So just in terms of comparison, to the permanent insurance, that's where the misaligned incentives can come in. But yeah, I, th- I think there's always a commission associated with it because in order to sell insurance, you have to get licensed, and there's a whole system involved that costs money. Yeah, and I don't want to make it sound like selling insurance is like a charity. Like right. it's not like an, I expect an insurance salesman to um, do it do it out of the goodness of his or her own heart. But if they are always incentivized to put their own, you know, that if A is better for B for them, then naturally they're going to be recommending A. And is it always the case that they're going to have that struggle? Yeah, I'd I say think, so. I think so. And I, yeah. I just I just went across a client the other day where I helped him. I actually had a phone call with the insurance rep that sold him the policy, but basically he converted a million dollars of term into a million dollars of whole life, which is a $36,000 a year premium. And I mean, it's an exorbitant amount, but the insurance salesman, it was you know, do we convert five hundred thousand or two hundred fifty thousand? That didn't cross his mind. He's just like, this is an easy, convenient, seamless sale for me to do. But how did it fit into the guy's plan? That wasn't to me. That was not a part of his logic when making that decision or mm. recommendation. All right. So be be extra careful. So way to go, yeah. Patrick, for being skeptical. Yes. Next question comes from Ellie. My dad was generous enough to set up an IRA for me when I was a teenager. He's awesome. He sounds like it. I haven't paid much attention to it, but now I'm looking more closely at my overall financial picture. The IRA is in a 12-month CD at a variable rate of 0.75. I wasn't aware that this kind of IRA was even a thing, and now I'm worried that I'm not getting the best return. How is a CD IRA different than an investing IRA, and which makes more sense long-term? It's a good question, and it's kind of funny because I think a lot of people's intro to investment products comes from banks. And so this is sort of a natural segue from for a bank to say, hey, we deal in CDs and sort of safer investments. Why don't you create an account with us for your IRA? They're not really different vehicles to any extent. The IRA, the individual retirement account, is the individual retirement account. It's just a shell account where you can put funds. Whether you choose to invest those in the stock market or in an annuity or in a CD is up to you as the individual. And in this case, you happen to inherit a CD. Uh, depending on your age, you know, so it seems like you're you're pretty young still. This is probably not optimal. Uh, I would I would suggest that a CD is not the place for your IRA to be because your IRA is money that you want to utilize in the future, and so you would hopefully want that to grow. And stocks are probably your best place for that. The CD more belongs for your taxable assets or your safety net, your your cash reserve. Yeah, this is gone are the days that you can get a five percent CD. That this might make sense <laughs> in this low interest rate environment. This 0.75 is not going to cut it. Yeah. Well, you know what? That was the last question for today. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, this was wonderful. And um, you guys kept the inappropriateness to, I think, a minimal level, which I appreciate. Where's my hand? 
Head oh, there check. it is. There it is. There we go. We got more postcards. <laughs> you guys don't know this, but I've been asking our listeners to send in postcards from all over the world. That's awesome. I know. It is awesome. So we got uh, we got one from Jay New. Uh, he went to Cooperstown, and so he sends greetings from the All-Star Village. It's a bunch of kids playing Little League, which is pretty cool. He says baseball answers. It should be Williamsport if we're talking about kids playing baseball. Well, it's a picture of kids playing baseball. Why Why Williamsport? Because that's where the Little League World Series is. Oh. Well, stuff... Sorry. Pennsylvania, st- I'm trying to re- represent. Oh, you're from Pennsylvania? I am. Send oh. a postcard. <laughs> Next time I'm there, I will. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have one from... Bethlehem Steel, some like steel stacks. That'll be what I'll send. Yes. Yeah. Send me. Send me a steel postcard. That'd be great. Uh, I don't know. It's. It's whatever. We'll just move on. It's some kids playing baseball, and it says Cooperstown All Star Village. Cooperstown, by the way, is beautiful little town. Is love it? Love it. Yeah, absolutely love it. Okay. Uh, we also got one all the way from Melbourne, Australia. Wow. Uh, and this is coming from Matt, who actually is from New Jersey. But he is living in Melbourne as a, on a scientific scientist exchange program for the U.S. government, and he says he looked into your antipode, our antipode, which I guess is like the farthest distance away from us, and he says it's in the Indian Ocean, and it looks like Perth is the farthest city that can write us a postcard. All right, everyone oh. from Perth, send it on in. Or you lost action. Or you lost souls in the Indian Ocean. That's yeah. right. See if you can figure that out. And then we also have one from DJ who sent one from Missoula, Montana, which uh, is a town near and dear to my heart because my family goes way, way back. I got roots. I got serious roots in Missoula. Uh, and uh, it looks like he spends his time driving around Yakima, Yakima Walla Walla, city so nice they named it twice, uh, Spokane, Kalispell, in Missoula. So you can practically, if this was pulled out, this postcard of Missoula, Montana was pulled out a little farther, I could point to like my dad's house and be like, that's where my dad is right oh. now. I know. That's Isn't that so cool? Sweet. So thank you, uh, everyone who sent in a postcard. Uh, I really, you guys are awesome. You, like, honestly, I squeal at the front she desk. She loves it. I love it. She loves it. I love it. <laughs> All right, I also have one more fun announcement. If you have an Amazon Echo, do any of you guys have an Amazon Echo? I don't, I don't yet. Nope. Apparently, people really like them. So the Amazon Echo is like, it's a little speaker and you talk to it and you're like, hey, Alexa. I don't know why you say Alexa, but you do. And you say, hey, Alexa, turn on the lights or play me this or do that or whatever. It's a brave new world. Anyway, the point is, is that if any of our listeners own an Amazon Echo, they can now include Motley Fool in their flash briefing. And they can also say stuff like, Alexa, play Motley Fool Answers. And it will be so. Wow. <laughs> they will feel like a god in it's their like own magic. house. My dad, my dad tried to uh, use that. My brother-in-law brought his Amazon Echo when we got it for Christmas, and uh, my dad was just in love with saying songs that he could just pull out uh, of his head. He's just, you know, play this, play that. That was the only thing he'll ever use it for, but he'll pay the money just to get it. That's yeah. kind of, but that's kind of cool. It is. It is kind yeah. of cool. Well, now you can tell your dad, dad, yell at it to play this episode of the podcast, and he'll be like, oh my God, it's my son. Right. But he'll say that in a less... A less way Probably deeper of how voice. I said Slightly deeper voice. Oh my god, it's my son. My son. So, so <laughs> proud. <laughs> oh, that's awful. I'm sure your dad is not sound He's like a great him. man. I'm sure he is. <laughs> I'm sure he is. I'm certainly not making fun of him. All right. So, yeah, that's the show. Again, thank you guys for joining us. Of course, uh, we will have another mailbag episode at some point in the future, and you can send us your letters by writing to answers at fool.com. You can also call us at Mrs. Fool, 866-MRS-FOOL, and leave a voicemail. And uh, Twitter, Facebook, we're everywhere. Everywhere. 
The show is edited perfectly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp and Sean Gates and Joe Perna this time, stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish.